Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Thanks, Tim. I uh, have to confess, I feel a little flustered stepping up here today. Uh, I got a call around 9.45 this morning uh, from Emily, who helps in the worship arts department. And she was like, hey, uh, are you coming? And I was like, yeah, of course. I'll be there in just a second. I'm ready for my mic check. I've been here real early, as is typically my practice. And so I came down. I was moseying through the alcove, talking to people. And it was when I walked into the worship center, I suddenly realized that our service starts at 10, not 1030. A little bit of a rush, a little bit of excitement of like, oh man, I've put everyone on notice. They are struggling to get uh, my mic checked, but we're great. We're here. I made it. Thankfully, I was in the building. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the applause. So if you've ever had that moment on your way to church, just know the pastor has too. So you're in good company. It's okay. No judgment is cast on you. And I got to admit, this, uh, this series on Acts has been really exciting um, a lot of fun to walk through this book. I really enjoyed it. It's also been kind of challenging because I feel like at times, especially as you get into the later part of Acts, it just kind of feels a little repetitive. Like it, it feels like it's like Paul going from one city after another. And as he goes to these different cities, um, he just kind of, the same thing happens everywhere he goes. He, he preaches the gospel and, and some people receive the gospel and respond to it. And then other people get really angry about the gospel he's preaching. And then he's beaten, arrested, flogged, and thrown out of the city. And then it's just like rinse, wash, repeat, um, like over, over, and over again. And it can be a little hard sometimes um, to know how do we keep applying this state of persecution that Paul's experiencing to our own context. Because as as Tim just pointed out, it, it can feel pretty removed from who we are and how we experience the world um, as Christians. Um, But before we get going too far with that, I want to back us up a little bit because as we've been going through this series, um, I have to say I I have so appreciated uh, Larry's sermons and the way that he has just like pushed us and led us towards the heart of God and what it means to follow Jesus through this series. Um, But if you've been around for his last couple of messages, you also have to know he has been killing it with like the pop culture references, right? Like he's just had like all of these different um, songs that he's inserted. Last week we, we started the whole message with Seinfeld, and it was like, it was so great, but he, he challenged me in one of his messages to like try to one-up him and, and have more, you know, pop culture references, and, and the problem with that, the problem with that challenge inherently is that I grew up as a Christian kid in the 80s and 90s, and so like there's just a huge gap for me in pop culture history because I wasn't allowed to experience pop culture as a Christian kid growing up in the 80s and 90s. Any millennials in the room who resonate with that? Yeah, amen? Like you just feel like, like I I didn't know the Simpsons were a thing until like high school. Like my parents just tried to like block that out and not let me see that. Uh, we didn't have cable TV. I wasn't allowed to watch like certain movies and all my friends would be talking about. I'm like, oh yeah, that was really good. And I'm like, no idea what they're talking about. So it's really hard sometimes. I, I sometimes feel like Captain America when he woke up after like 50 years being frozen. He's like, I think I got that reference, right? And you're just trying to catch up with all the pop culture references. Last week, Larry mentioned Seinfeld and he says something about like no soup for you. And I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> 
And then my friend next to me goes, it's a Seinfeld reference. And I was like, oh, got it. Like just no, no cultural awareness at all. Because if you were a Christian kid who, millennial or, or uh, Gen Xer, who grew up in that time frame in a Christian household, you really didn't get to experience a lot of that pop culture because you were called to be a Jesus freak. Anyone remember DC Talk Jesus freak? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, that was my first cassette. Okay, it's really hard to like be up with pop culture when your first cassette is a song about how you're supposed to be a Jesus freak. And the whole point of this song for the uninitiated is that you don't care what everyone thinks about you. You're willing to stand out from the crowd and be a Jesus freak because you're so committed to who he is that you just kind of miss everything else going on in the world. And you're fine with that. Like if people make fun of you, I was about to quote the song. I'm not going to do that. But all right, we'll just keep going. It was really hard. In fact, I was so committed to this, like, bit of being a Jesus freak that um, <laughs> this is really embarrassing. But I was in middle school. Remember, first cassette. I actually used that cassette um, and burned it onto a CD. Any remember you could do that and, like, make your own CD? Um, I did that so that it would look like it was, like, not an official CD. And the reason I did that is I wanted one of my non-believing friends to listen to the song Jesus Freak. And then I was going to tell him that it was me in the song rapping with my church buddies. Because somehow in my like middle school mind, I thought that was less lame than just having him listen to Christian music. Like I'm not lying. And so I like burn the CD. I have him listen to it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm that guy. It was Toby Mac. I wanted the Toby Mac part for those of you know. I was like, yeah, this is me. This is me and my buddies. Like we just made this song. And like, what do you think of it? And he's like, there's no way that you and your buddies recorded that at church. Like that's just not, that's not what happened. And for some reason in my head, lying about that and like pirating Christian music was somehow better than like saying four-letter curse words. I don't know. Like it was all twisted up in my mind. But if you grew up in that time frame, or even if you didn't, if you were raising kids, like there's this challenge inherent with the book of Acts where, yeah, being a, a Jesus freak, following Jesus, being committed to Jesus, for most of us, it doesn't look like the early church. And for most of us, it looks like maybe not watching certain movies or not saying certain four-letter words or engaging with people in a certain way. But man, for the early church, like, you could say Paul was the original Jesus freak. And it's okay to cringe at that. I did when I thought of it. But man, there was a cost to following the way of Jesus that just feels so far removed from most of us. And most of us on a daily basis are not, like, driven out of our homes and our towns for proclaiming that we're Christians and that we follow the way. But that was the experience of the early church. And so the challenge, I think, for us when you come to these story after story after story of people who are persecuted for their faith and try to apply it to our context is, is it just feels like this huge gap in what it means to actually be committed to following Jesus. And yet what we see today in the story of the Apostle Paul is this deep commitment to follow the way of Jesus wherever it will lead him. And to be willing to proclaim the gospel and the good news of Jesus, whatever the cost, even if it takes him to a place of suffering. And I think the question inherent in this story is, do our stories resemble Paul's story in our own context? We have to recognize that there's a difference between what Paul was living through and what we were living through. But what can we pull out? What can we glean from this story for our own lives and our own commitment to the way of Jesus and what it means to follow him? And so that's where we're headed today. 
And as we jump into this story, kind of macro structure of where we're going, this is the first part of the story. We're going to look at Paul's commitment to following Jesus wherever it leads him. And then we're going to look at Paul's commitment to proclaiming the good news of Jesus no matter the cost. And what we will see is both of those things lead him to a place of suffering. And so if you remember last week, Larry left us with Paul in the beach outside of the city of Ephesus, where he had been talking with his friends and with the church and, and the believers. This is a church that he had been with for over three years, pouring out into them. And, and he gives this message, this farewell goodbye, as he heads towards Jerusalem. And, and language tells or the Luke tells us that, that there's such, like, emotional connection and bond between Paul and this church that they literally have to, to tear themselves away from one another for Paul to go to Jerusalem. And as we get into the story, there's this inherent conflict that we see in these chapters in Acts 19 and 20 and 21. And, and the conflict that we see is that city after city Paul goes to to kind of say his, his final goodbye as he heads towards Jerusalem is that in city after city, all of the Christian believers tell him, hey, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, the, the Holy Spirit is telling us to warn you that you will be imprisoned that you will suffer, that you will experience hardship. And we don't think you should go. And on the other side is Paul, who tells us again and again and again that he feels compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so you have this inherent conflict in the story where all of the believers, city after city after city, church after church after church, is telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You are going to suffer and be imprisoned, and, and you can avoid all of that if you just don't go. And, and they're telling him all of these things. Luke goes out of his way to say, in the Spirit, they are offering these warnings. And then Paul feels like the Spirit is leading him in a different direction. And, and I don't know if in your life you've ever felt that conflict between, man, I, I really feel like God is, is pulling me in some direction, but it feels kind of foggy or vague, or, or maybe you even have a deep conviction about that, but everyone else in your life is like, are you sure that that's where you want to go? You have to wonder for Paul on this way to Jerusalem, if, if he's not kind of constantly in this internal turmoil about, man, am, am I being disobedient to the Spirit? Is, is there something that I'm not getting? Is there something that, that I'm missing here? Everyone keeps telling me the same thing. And you have to wonder what doubt and confusion maybe Paul had in this space. But, but what we see is that he has this firm conviction time and time again. He receives these warnings. He says, I hear you. And yet the Spirit has told me I must go and so I must follow. And I think what we see happening in this story is actually not that foreign to us. Because I think what Luke is trying to show us is that this early church, they are receiving these warnings in the Spirit. They are receiving these, these visions and these, these ideas of what's going to happen to Paul. In fact, there's one person, his name is Agabus, and he comes up to Paul and he says, Hey, Paul, can I have your belt? Which is a weird request. And he asks for his belt, and then he ties himself up with Paul's belt, and he says, This is what is going to happen to the owner of this belt when he goes to Jerusalem. And right after that prophecy, this is what Luke tells us about this interaction. In Acts 21, 12 through 14, it says, When they had heard this prophecy, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered them, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. You see, Paul is receiving these warnings, but I I think the disconnect is that the people who are offering this warning, they say, okay, if this bad stuff is going to happen to you, if you're going to be bound, if you're going to be imprisoned, if you're going to suffer, if you're going to experience hardship, then of course it's God's will that you shouldn't go. But Paul knows the deeper truth that sometimes following Jesus doesn't lead us away from suffering, but directly into the heart of the places that are harder for us to go. See, what we see from Paul in this story is a willingness to follow Jesus wherever Jesus will lead him. A willingness to follow Jesus to the very places that that he probably wishes he didn't have to go. Because he knows that following the way of Jesus, following the way of his rabbi, his teacher, his savior... He knows that why would he expect anything different about his story than Jesus' story? And so he takes up the way of Jesus and is willing to follow him into Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him there. See, for for Paul, following the way of Jesus is not something that, that just leads us to the place where everything is good in our lives and Jesus just fixes everything and, and it's all sunshine and roses. Paul knows that there's something inherent about being a follower of Jesus that will lead us to a place of hardship and suffering. And so he's willing to follow his Savior there. And the question for us is, is are we willing to follow Jesus wherever he might lead us? At Waterstone, we like to talk about this idea that, that as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, we want to follow so closely in Jesus' footsteps that as we follow him, that the dust of our rabbi covers us. And it comes from this ancient Jewish tradition where, where the followers of a particular teacher, they, they had this saying that they wanted to follow so closely to the footsteps of, of their teacher and of their, their rabbi that, that the dust would flow over them. They'd be covered in the dust of their rabbi because they were so committed to his way. And that's what we really see from Paul in this story. But if that feels like a little bit of a, of a weird context for you, because after all, there's not very many times we're walking on dirt streets. And I, I like to think of it when we're following a car in front of us. Anyone ever caravaned with someone and followed a car in front of you? And they know the way, they know where they're going, and you just have to try to keep up and stay with them. For me, usually it's, it's following my father-in-law on family vacations, which is like a whole nother sermon for another time, because it creates a lot of like emotion, but, you know, you're following this person that knows where they're going, and if you're following them, you you are just, like, all out committed to making sure that you stay right behind them. If someone else tries to merge in front of you and and separate you, you like, what do you do? You speed up so they can't get in, and you don't let them in, or if someone comes to a yellow light. Now, we've got to pause. If you are leading a caravan of people and you come to a yellow light, what do you do? Stop. Thank you. Yes, you stop. You stop, amen? We don't rush through the yellow light. That's dangerous. I hope my father-in-law's listening. All right, but if he's not, that's great. Well, I love him, he's great. But if you come to a yellow light and they go through the yellow light, you do everything you can to get through as well. I mean, you stop at nothing to stay behind the car in front of you. The rules don't matter because you are committed to getting to the place where the person leading you is getting, and you don't want to be separated. And that's what we see from Paul in this moment. And the question for us as we look at this story is, is, are there things that we allow to get in the way of following the will of God in our lives? Are there things that we allow to merge into our lives that separate us from following the way of Jesus? 
See, Paul had this deep commitment to follow Jesus wherever he leads. And I think sometimes there are things that come up in our lives that that we just choose to say, ah, you know what, actually, that feels a little too hard. I don't know if I want to go there. I don't know what that might be for you, but the question that this text forces us to wrestle with is, is how willing are we to go with Jesus to the hard places in this world and in our lives? And so Paul, he, he's willing to follow Jesus wherever it leads, even if that leads to Jerusalem and chains and suffering. But he doesn't just go because he, he, he wants to suffer or he's just excited about this prospect. The, the reason he's so willing to go to Jerusalem is not just because he feel like, feels like God is leading him there, but also because he feels like he has been called to proclaim the good news in Jerusalem. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter 20, the, the story that we looked at last week in Paul's speech to the Ephesians, this is what he says to them about this call, this, this, this idea that he has to go to Jerusalem and why. He says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. You see, Paul, it's not just that we go into places of suffering as Jesus leads, it's that that there's purpose and following Jesus into these spaces. And and Paul knows that God has placed a particular calling on his life to proclaim the good news of God's grace, even in Jerusalem, knowing that the people there will be angry about what he has to say. And he's willing to pay the cost of proclaiming that message. And and so Paul goes to Jerusalem, and upon arriving there, he meets with the the church, the group of, of Jewish believers in the city, and he tells them, this report of everything that's happened in the last few chapters that we've looked at. He tells them about the good news and the way it's spreading and all the Gentile believers that come into faith and the city after city after city that, that's taken hold of the gospel and, and its roots are growing deep and churches are being planted and, and a worship service breaks out. They just begin to praise God for all that he's doing. But then the tone of the meeting shifts and they say, hey, hey, Paul, like this is so exciting, but you have to know people are angry that you're here. They are not excited about what you are doing. In fact, there are rumors going around the city that you are leading people away from the the true of who Yahweh is, that that you're leading people away from our God, that you're telling them they don't have to follow the Mosaic law, that you're telling them that the sacrificial system and the temple doesn't matter anymore because of Jesus, and, and, and you are in trouble if you don't do something about it. So we've got this plan where you can go into the temple and and what we think you should do is just actually perform all the rituals, follow all of the codes, do everything that you're supposed to do and and prove to everyone that you're still loyal to Yahweh and to the Mosaic law. So Paul agrees to do it and he goes into the temple. He even offers to pay for other people who are going through the ritual. and, And at the end of the seven days... He goes back to the temple to kind of set everything right and and finish this ritual. And people there see him in the temple. And it's actually a group of Jewish people from the city of Ephesus who've seen what Paul is doing in that city. They've seen the gospel he's proclaiming and they're angry and they seize him and they drag him out. And they start accusing him of preaching against the people of Israel and preaching against the way of Yahweh and that, that he's defiling the temple it's honestly all these trumped up charges that they're, they're making up to try to get Paul in trouble. But it doesn't matter because a mob forms and seizes him. And the question that I keep coming back to 
and acts, is why does the gospel have this response? I mean, if the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it's a message of liberation and salvation, and the idea that God's kingdom is inbreaking into our sin-stained world and providing freedom for people and forgiveness from sins and restoration for all things that are broken in our world. Why does it, in city after city after city, like get this response of anger and hatred and violence? Why does it cause so much? If the good news is good news, why does it make so many people angry? It feels kind of confusing because you look at Paul's approach and it's not his delivery. It's not the nature of his delivery that causes all of this confusion and anger and hatred. It's the inherent disruptive nature of the gospel. You see, because what the gospel does in city after city after city is it, is it begins to press on people's identity is what it does. It pushes against the most sacred parts of ourselves that we've tried to define for ourselves, the ways that we've tried to say who we are and what we're about, and the gospel pushes against those things. And it elicits this response of anger and vitriol and hatred and rioting. Because we don't like when people press against our identities. We see this in the, the city of Jerusalem. The, the reason that people were so upset is, is Paul is proclaiming this gospel that, that all of the codes, all of the morals, all of the ways that they have identified themselves as the people of God have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and they no longer have to follow them in the same way. But he takes it one step further and says that this person, Jesus, who's fulfilled the law is welcoming all people, Gentiles, into the kingdom of God. And people don't want to hear that message. And, and it's easy to empathize with the Jews of Jerusalem in this moment. Because if you think about their history, I mean, for the last several hundred years, it has been one oppressor after another. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. I mean, there's group after group, people after people that come into the city and mock their way of life, threaten their temples and their God, mock and, and do unspeakable things to their heroes into their temple, all of the ways that they have identified themselves, all of the ways that they have pulled themselves together and said, this is who we are and we will not be shaken from our identity, no matter who is in power. And the, the people who have constantly been pressing against that, Paul is suddenly saying that, that the message of the gospel is, is those oppressors, those Gentiles, those pagans are welcome in the kingdom of God. It's a threat to their national and religious identity, and it, it causes a, a revolt and a riot. But it's not that different from our own response to the gospel. There, there are many places that we find our identity, and maybe for most of us it's not ancient Mosaic law, but there are places that we find our identity that the gospel presses against. Cultural narratives that we believe in, even as Christians at times, that the gospel pushes against and makes us uncomfortable. I think of the way that we've kind of bought into this culture of performance and we find our identity in, in this idea that I am what I do. And we live in a culture of achievement where, where how well we do things and, and how many things we do are the way we define ourselves and identify ourselves. And the gospel has things to say about that. 
I think of the way that, that we can fall into this identity of, of possession. I am what I have. The gospel of materialism, the, the void in our culture and our hearts that's been left by shifting God, I will just be filled by all the stuff that we want. And so our temple is Amazon and our worship is shopping. We just try to fill our lives with things because we are what we have. And I think about our, our cultural narratives around pleasure. And the way we identify ourselves is, I, I am what I want. I mean, it's no mistake when you talk about, and I know this is, is a touchy subject, but when you talk about sexual identity and orientation and gender identity and the ways that, that we define ourselves by our sexual preferences, and we say, this isn't just something I prefer or desire, but it is who I am. The gospel has things to say about that. I think about our, our belief in the way we find identity and, and power and our pursuit of I am what I control. And if I feel insecure or I lack safety, then I just have to, to pull the levers of power available to me in this world to try to protect myself, my people, my tribe, so they feel safe. See, what Paul shows us is, is the gospel touches all of these areas. The gospel is disruptive to our identity, but, it, but not just disruptive, it, it serves as a threat. And people often respond to threats with violence. And that's what they do to Paul. And their fear and their anxiety, they turn that energy on the body of Paul and they begin to beat him mercilessly. A, a lynch mob forms and, and they want to, to kill him because of what he says and what he does. I think we're pretty far removed from that reality in our daily lives. I don't think many of us are, are going to experience the level of persecution and hatred that Paul did. But I think we have to ask ourselves, is the gospel we preach disruptive to the world around us? Does the good news press against identity and the culture and the people around us? Does it press against our own identities in ways that causes discomfort? Not that we take joy in that discomfort, not that we love that discomfort, not that we even pursue that space. But proclaiming the news that Jesus is Lord inherently means that Caesar is not and vicariously that you are not and I am not. And that carries with it a threat to every one of our identities. Do we preach a gospel that pushes against those places? Are we willing to proclaim that truth, whatever the cost? See, Paul was. Not only was he willing to follow Jesus wherever it led and even to Jerusalem in chains and suffering, but he was willing to, to proclaim the good news of who Jesus was with all of its implications, all of its threats to our identity, no matter the cost to himself. And in fact, after this whole lynch mob and, and, and after everyone has tried to beat him to death and the Roman soldiers come and, and kind of save him but arrest him because they think he's causing some sort of, of riot and insurgency, Paul talks to the Roman soldier and says, hey, could I actually address the people? And so battered and bloodied and beaten, he stands on the temple steps and begins to tell them the testimony of what God has done in his life. And it's fascinating in the story. They all listen to him. It says that a hush falls over the mob. And that he just relates to them. I, I was once like you. I was zealous for the law. I was doing what you are doing now. I was trying to persecute and kill Christians. Jesus got a hold of me. 
I, I was blind to who he was, and, and he has revealed himself to me, and I want to tell you about who he is because he has sent me to the Gentiles, and that was his mistake because it, it brought him back to that place of threatening their identity. And it says, as soon as he said, Jesus sent me to the Gentiles, the riot broke out again, and they were so violent that the Roman soldiers literally had to carry him out of the crowd to save him. See, the gospel carries us to places that proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is will threaten the cultural narratives around us. Are we willing to step into those places? So this is what happens to Paul in verse 21, 30, or chapter 21, 30 through 32. It says, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions and seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates of the temple were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops, and the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. I don't know if you pick up on some of the, the wording in this story, but, but Luke is drawing very clear parallels to Paul's time in Jerusalem and Jesus' own trial. Many of the words that he used, if you read in the Gospel of Luke, and remember, same author, if you read in the Gospel of Luke the story of Jesus on trial in Jerusalem, the whole city is in an uproar. Everyone is trumping up charges against Jesus. There's confusion over what he's done. The crowd is a mob. They're seizing him. They're dragging him from place to place. Luke is going out of his way to remind us of the story of Jesus and that Paul is reenacting, reliving that same narrative in this story. In fact, earlier when, when Paul sets his face to Jerusalem and, and say, they say the Lord's will be done, we hear echoes of Jesus' own prayer in Gethsemane where he says, not my will, but your will. When Paul says he's willing to be bound and chained and even die in Jerusalem, we hear echoes of Jesus saying over and over and over again, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. You see, what Luke is doing is saying that when we follow the way of Jesus, we should not be surprised if our story begins to look like Jesus' story. That following the way of Jesus often comes at a cost to ourselves. It, aligning our stories with Jesus' story can be a beautiful thing. But we should not be surprised when there's an inherent cost that comes with that practice. See, Paul goes to Jerusalem to preach to the people he loves. And just as Jesus before him went to Jerusalem to proclaim the good news and to save the world that he loves. Paul is following in the footsteps of his Savior. I don't know your story. I doubt many of us will be called to face the same things that Paul is called to face. But I do know that Jesus has promised his followers that in this life we will have trouble. That we will experience hardship and brokenness. And not just because the world is broken, but because we have chosen the upside-down kingdom. To worship and believe and follow a Savior who says that this world is broken and needs to be made right. And inherent in that uh, is a threat to the powers and status quo of this world. 
And the question for us is, is are we willing to go to the places Jesus might call us to proclaim that good news, whatever the cost, whatever the commitment, wherever it might lead? Are we willing to make our stories look like the story of Jesus? The beautiful thing about Paul's story, though, and the last two things we'll wrap up with, and I hope it provides some hope for all of us if you're like, man, this is a downer. <laughs> like, this is great. This sounds terrible. <laughs> is Paul, when he's arrested, and he's placed in this jail cell in Jerusalem, and, and Luke gives us this detail that, that Jesus appeared to him and sat next with him in the jail cell. And he says, Paul, I know this is hard. I know that, that, that this is not what you would want, but I need you to know that I'm with you in it and that you are going to Rome to proclaim the good news before Caesar himself. And I'm going to get you there. And I have to imagine that in that moment of Jesus appearing, it doesn't necessarily make the suffering any less difficult or it doesn't make it any less harder. But, but I think the comfort of Jesus saying that he is with him in that space has to do something to strengthen Paul. In fact, we actually know that. Because later in the, in the letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he says that the Lord appeared to me and strengthened me for the journey. You see, we, we don't just follow a, a God. He's not just like a commanding general that sends people over the hill to whatever is waiting for them and, and thinking, knowing that they're going to suffer. We follow someone who is willing to go before us into the places of suffering and has promised to go with us to those places. We do not go alone to the places Jesus has called us to. We follow him because he has already gone to those places. But the second thing, and it, there's this small detail in the story that it's really easy to actually bypass and miss altogether. And one of the, the things that I think is sometimes frustrating about the Bible is you'll read certain stories and you'll think like, okay, th this was a great story, but I don't even know the name of the person you, you just spent like 30 verses talking about. Like you just didn't even think that was a part of the story. And then other times the Bible's like, these are the sandals that they were wearing on the journey. You're like, What? Like, why is that the detail that we needed? But when the authors of Scripture give us those specific details, they're trying to tell us something very specific. And Luke gives us this detail in the story that's just, it's this almost throwaway sentence that's loaded with meaning. As Paul is seized and dragged from the temple courts, Luke tells us that the temple gates were shut. And I think the detail in the story is so important because it's kind of elevating us out of the story. It's giving us a higher view of what's actually happening. Because what Luke is saying is that in this story, it's not actually about Paul's suffering. It's actually bigger than that. Paul is following the way of Jesus because he's following a God who's willing to suffer. You see, the temple gates are shut because they are not just rejecting God's messenger. They are rejecting God's Messiah. The people are rejecting who God has revealed himself to be. What Luke is saying is, is that it's not just Paul's willingness to go into the places of suffering, but Paul is going there because he serves a God who is willing to go back to Jerusalem, the place where the Messiah was originally rejected. That God is willing to go to the places again and again and again where he experiences rejection. When, when the threat of his gospel presses against our identity and we push him out, he does not stop pursuing us. God is willing to go to the places where we continually push back and reject and close the doors. And God is a God who will continually knock and seek us out.
And that is why Paul is willing to go because that's the type of God he believes in. That's the type of God he serves. And and you have to think back, and I think it's appropriate that we're wrapped today with the, the story of communion and coming to the Lord's table because that's inherent to the story of communion. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he gathered his followers, his disciples, to himself. And knowing the cross was awaiting him, knowing the arrest, knowing the beating, knowing what was happening, he he gathers his disciples together. And he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember this story of what God is willing to do to bring the story of grace and redemption and reconciliation to the world. I don't think it's any mistake that all of the people in that room suffered a martyr's death because they had seen what their Savior was willing to do and they took up that call and they followed him wherever they would lead. And so as we enter now into a time of communion, there's stations, there were eight stations around the room, four in the back and four up front. I would encourage you to reflect on two questions. I think this story forces us to ask the question, are there places in our lives that we've closed off to God, where we have shut him out, we've shut the gates of our hearts and said, no, actually you can't touch this part of my identity. Is God maybe calling us to open ourselves in those spaces? And then secondly, I I think the the text forces us to ask the question, how far are we willing to go to follow a Savior who's willing to lay down his life for the world that he loved? How far are we willing to follow him? Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I know we come to this text. I know it's challenging. I know that at times it can feel overwhelming. And yet what we see in the story of Paul should give us hope that in your name, all things are possible. We should take hope in the fact that for most of us, we'll never be called to the level that Paul was called to. Yet God, what would it look like for us to take the next step? What would it look like for us to open ourselves to the truth of your word, to allow it to touch every place of our identity? God, what would it look like for us to be willing to follow you wherever you might lead? Into our families, our friends, our workplaces, to proclaim the good news of who you are and what you've done. God, what would it look like for us to align our stories with your story? And to not be surprised when that comes at a cost. God, as we come to that table, we recognize the hope that we have that you call us into these hard spaces, but that you go before us and that you loved us enough to enter those spaces on our behalf. God, I pray that the grace of that truth would envelop our hearts and stir us up to live for you more fully. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.